I got profoundly interested in the strangeness of how easily we project ourselves into the life form of the puppet and also into the long history of the performance of sincerity. And those have both been questions that have stayed with me and that I've worked with over the years, trying to think about how a human being knows when it is watching a sincere event, what sincerity means. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of arts research in Africa. I'm Professor Krista Doherty, the Head of Arts Research in the Witt School of Arts. Jane is a writer, playwright, and academic. She currently holds the Andrew W. Mellon Chair of Aesthetic Theory and Material Performance at the Center for Humanities Research, University of the Western Cape. And she is a frequent creative collaborator at the Center for the Less Good Idea in Johannesburg, where she's directed a number of their seasons. Jane has written several plays for puppets, working with the artist William Kentridge and Handspring Puppet Company, notably the internationally acclaimed Ubu and the Truth Commission. Jane has also written a puppet play for the American Renaissance scholar Stephen Greenblatt, a work dealing with the early history of neurology. Her second novel explored the topic of heart transplants in South Africa, and most recently she has completed a monograph on William Kentridge's production of Dmitry Shostakovich's opera, The Nose, at the New York Metropolitan. I thought we can start by just talking about your position at, at UWC and the Center for Humanities Research. And you have the very intriguing chair title of the Chair of Aesthetic Theory and Material Performance. Could you speak to what occupying that chair entails? Yeah, I'd be delighted to, because I suppose in a way, a chair, when nominated as such, conjures up both an idea of someone who thinks and also a material object. So that's rather nice to be thinking about the chair as I'm thinking about the chair. And that's precisely because my situation is ideally imagined to bring together thinking about aesthetics and visual meaning and affect and how we interpret things for value as a kind of an abstract set of ideas, and then also to work through performance and various modes of uh, aesthetic engagement that bring that argument into the dimensions of uh, material practice. So the chair, in a way, is ideally thought of something that's going to confound a Cartesian dualism, that I'm bringing together both materiality and ideas. And I've been asked to head up a project which is called the Laboratory of Kinetic Objects. And we're trying to think about why it is that when an object moves, we think it's live. What is that enigma in us? And that's a an argument, a question that goes back to Aristotle, but also comes all the way through to animation theory. And so it touches on questions around the robotic and neurology and puppetry arts. So the laboratory of kinetic objects is trying to bring those things together in as puzzling and as playful a way as possible. And I've got a very nice small example that will help your audience think about this question and what it is that we're engaging in. In 2018, there were a couple of 
funerals, mass funerals for robotic dogs that had been designed and made by Sony. And their owners were grieving because the dogs had come to the kind of natural lifespan of their machines. And Sony had decided to terminate their robotic dogs called Ibos because they were going to focus on the core business, which was music. And so there were people who had enormous affective attachments to these robotic dogs and these Buddhist temples had these collective funerals for people to go through a rite of passage where they separated themselves from these contrived beings who had become repositories of projected love. So that's the sort of puzzle that's at the heart of our thinking about the limits of the human now and the subject-object relationship. That's a very poignant example <laughs> when the manufacturer pulls the plug on your manufactured love object. Absolutely, because obviously till that point, you know, if there was anything defective with one's eyeball, you could get some kind of substitute hip or you could get a replacement for its software. And at a certain point, it was just no longer necessary. And so whatever gods may have been running Sony Corp they terminated the species. And so it's enigmatic to think about in all of our complex questioning around a species limit and precariousness. So, you know, in these days of COVID, to think of which species are dispensable, you know, Sony's already had that conversation. Jane, you brought to the chair your very long and productive creative association with the Handspring Puppet Company. Did that figure in the notion of material performance and how you approached the work you were going to do in the chair at UWC? Absolutely so. I know I have been thinking for a number of years. Uh, there have been two big inquiries, and they're curiously linked to one another, and they arise out of the same phenomenon, and that was... Uh, in the 90s, I wrote a play for Handspring Puppet Company and for Kentridge, Ubu and the Truth Commission, which was using the archive of the commission to try and think about what performance meant in our period of public hearings, where people were trying to gauge and manifest adequate guilt or a sense of culpability or remorse inside this series of public hearings. And I was very interested in the question of how speech acts get performed on behalf of others. And the kind of moral questions around performance were very profound at the time, as you might imagine, working with our archive from the commission. And so we decided to work with puppets and we worked with Handspring Puppet Company, who then spoke this testimony that belonged to someone else. Now, the astonishing thing was, precisely because it was so clear that it belonged to someone else, the audience's kind of right, the license that they gave themselves to pour themselves into the authenticity of the words that were being spoken was completely unsullied. So the fact that it was so manifestly a puppet that was speaking the testimony made it easier for an audience to identify with the victims who were testifying at the commission. And so I got profoundly interested in the strangeness of how 
easily we project ourselves into the life form of the puppet and also into the long history of the performance of sincerity. And those have both been questions that have stayed with me and that I've worked with over the years, trying to think about how a human being knows when it is watching a sincere event, what sincerity means, and got very interested in the history of that idea around the Reformation and the histories of the religious wars and conversion and so on. So that was one set of ideas. And then related to that was the question around the puppet. And in your writings about the work of the Handspring Puppet Company and their puppets and the relationship between the actor puppeteers and the physical puppets, you've suggested that in some ways the lessons being learned there anticipate what we're going to have to deal with in a world where robotics becomes radically more advanced and AI is starting to become very dominant in our ways of existing and relating to other humans and objects. So I think that's a really beguiling and interesting question because one response to that is panic (laughs) and to be anxious about no longer being able to determine what is real and what is simulated. But I suspect that's why I'm also interested in the question around sincerity because that clearly has been a conversation we've been having with ourselves since the early modern era, if not you know prior to that, where one is having to assemble a culturally appropriate and situationally responsible performance of something that is happening inside of you. You have to mobilize an externalized representation of an internal field. And one learns how to do this. That's part of what happens in the production of the human subject. We acquire the deftness and the agility to work between gesture and language to persuade other peoples of our inner universe. And so that's something that is innate to our species. And yet somehow at this moment where there are such manifest simulations, we are incredibly anxious about losing access to the authenticity of ourselves. But I suspect, you know, that there had never has been, you know, the language that we speak is always someone else's language. And we have acquired more or less deftness in managing the language that we have implanted in us from elsewhere. But obviously, you know, the robotic, I don't know how many people have been watching shows like Westworld and so on, in which one is really confounded by facing the representations that one takes for live. And it's been a long journey, you know. It's been the history of science fiction throughout the 20th century, the uncanniness of the almost live alongside one. And I think anybody who has worked inside a deadening bureaucratic environment, who has worked inside a manipulated space, you feel yourself becoming a husk. So I think late capitalism has made a kind of natural metaphor out of the puppet because we all feel increasingly as if whoever it is inside is inadequate to the demands of the external world that they're meeting. Yes, a world of automatons. Exactly. And what we'll find in our kind of contemporary society 
that's the kind of language that is used to describe the modern experience. We are described as automata and we have puppet states and we have any number of metaphors that activate the same idea where we feel we've lost agency. And I suspect in some way it's the tail end of the great romantic impulse that your obligation as a human being, this sort of Nietzschean drive, represent yourself and be yourself while you are doing it. I think that that's something that we understand is now a kind of a past idyll and we're having to come to terms with that. And I think for many of us, that's a very profound loss. Jane, if we can just shift slightly and maybe to look at a particular example of the deadening bureaucratic environment, and that's the modern university in South Africa. And what interests me from Wits is how have you gone about engaging with a university context such as UWC that doesn't have any creative artist disciplines due to the apartheid planning of that university when it was first set up. How have you engaged with that lack? So I'm very interested in that question because what is evident in that question is that there's an aspect of my career that you're not fully aware of, and that is that I was at UWC before I was at WITS. So UWC was the first place I got an academic job in the 80s. And at that stage, you know, UWC, University of the Western Cape, like all of the universities in the 80s, were trying to come to terms with the kind of transition to a a new state and trying to throw off the shackles of the apartheid regime and embrace university institutions that were no longer going to be racialized. And the universities which had historically been liberal in one or more disguises to various extents, had fought against the apartheid legacies. And the University of the Western Cape had a really brilliant man as its rector, Jake Schervel, who styled the university as the intellectual home of the left. And so at a certain point, people were being attracted to UWC because they were going to engage in a kind of wholesale assault on the apartheid educational apparatus. UWC was introduced in 1959, and it was meant to be a teacher's training college for so-called coloreds. In South Africa, the designation colored is a very particular designation. It's not the generic designation for black persons, but people of kind of mixed colonial heritages. And the university, like other historically disadvantaged institutions, had no art program. And so we spent about 15 years at UWC from 1985, which coincided with the transition and the demise of the apartheid state, fighting very actively for an art school at the university. And the very poignant thing was to discover that even though the institution was sympathetic in principle to that idea, as the apartheid regime was displaced, the wisdom of the central state apparatus was that because there were two other art schools in the region, one at the University of Cape Town and one at the University of Stellenbosch, there could not be justifiably another art school invented in the region. So those other two 
institutions are historically white institutions. So the end effect was that we couldn't have an arts program in a not white university. So Premish Lalu, who was the director of the Center for Humanities Research, who was an ex-student of mine and a real wizard for thinking politically and with a massive passion for the cultural project, managed to get funding for a big program in aesthetic education. So it was the idea of looking at the arts, but largely through the intellectual apparatus, thinking with theorists around the aesthetic and what the aesthetic meant for the production of open and creative and stimulated um, subjectivities. So initially that funding was for a theoretical project, but then Premish and I had spoken and I had been working with Handspring Puppet Company on a project in a rural village, Barrydale, outside in the Western Cape, where we were using puppetry as a way of engaging with village kids. And it's a, a region rife with fetal alcohol syndrome because it's in the wine developing region. And so all of the kind of motor skills necessary for puppetry arts have historically been suggested to be particularly useful for neurological development. So we started working out in Barrydale. There are so many marvelous things about the puppet. The puppet is unraced. So, you know, if you're working, you're carving into wood, as Adrian Kohler does, he's the, the puppet maker for Handspring Puppet Company, any color that that being has is projected. It's either painted on the surface or it's projected by the viewer because it's carved in a natural wood. So race disintegrates. And it's also incredibly liberating in terms of gender because the players behind the playboard can be men or women or boys or girls or trans or whatever. And the puppet has its own constituted identity and that's not the natural identity necessarily of the performers. So there are all sorts of radical experiments in subjectivity possible inside the arts of puppetry. And that's where we started the laboratory of kinetic objects. And that became the practice base for the aesthetic education project that was going on at the Center for Humanities Research at UWC. And as the years have evolved, we've now been working on the project for 10 years. As that project has evolved, we've gained more and more license in the university. And we are busy designing what is effectively an art school for the Laboratory of Kinetic Objects, which is going to be in Woodstock. The University of the Western Cape was flung out onto the Cape Flats when people were displaced, when people of color were displaced from the city. And the wonderful thing is that the new School of Arts is going to be back in the city again. So it's the University of the Western Cape's opportunity to retrieve that ground of people who are displaced from District 6 and Woodstock. That's where the new art school is going to be based. And is that also known as the Factory of the Arts? Okay, so that's very interesting. So Heidi Grunebaum, who's also one of the people who is a kind of a core thinker at the Center for Humanities Research, she has been working in a very serious way to allow us to have a community of art practitioners inside the program that was ostensibly meant just for theorists. And so we have an artist's residency program 
and that's called the Factory of the Arts. And so every year we have a spectrum of different artists, but we also now have taken the kind of license to give our postdoctoral opportunities uh, to people who are interstitial, who are between arts theory and art practice. So we have musicians and fine artists and performers and writers inside that factory of the arts. And that will all be located in the new building in Woodstock. That sounds very exciting. With creative arts being introduced into this context, this institutional context of UWC, what does that mean for the status of creative art as a form of thinking, as a form of experimentation in relation to the established disciplines in the university? Yeah, trying to imagine how does creative work count as research practice? Curiously, I was in the UK for several years. I had the Wally Schoenke Chair of Theatre at the University of Leeds, and they had a very advanced, and I think the British have been leading that inquiry into how one gives research credit for pure creative practice. And we also had a third-year program in which students' final project was the making of a work of theatre. So I think the British have led that field in a way because their kind of intellectual credibility in many ways was based inside theatre practice. Their great thinkers were theatre practitioners. So I think they have a different legacy of thinking the relationship between idea and performance. So I think that's a particular intellectual trajectory that gave rise to that opportunity. And so I developed inside myself a kind of a natural attitude that thinking is done in the arts. And if it's moved into a kind of written expression of the performance or the manifestation that's in its own natural idiom, you're deforming the idea that an idea that is in three dimensions or that is in time, that is realized in particular ways, can only give a pale shadow of itself when it is represented in a language that is textual. Textual work is something different. It's not inferior. It's just they're different spheres. So I always try and agitate for the recognition of the work of art as intellectual work. And, you know, one has to work hard to define the criteria by which the work of art is idea. But just because that's a difficult project doesn't mean that you don't say to yourself, okay, well, we stop asking the question of whether a work of art can be an idea, whether it can drive an argument and can be a legitimate intellectual endeavor. So that's sort of putting my cards on the table. I believe that the work of art is profoundly intellectual. And I guess in some way it's because I've had the enormous joy and pleasure of working with artists who themselves are persuaded of that and who make work that is profoundly challenging at the level of idea. So working with Handspring and working with Kentridge, who all are engaged in kind of threshold breaking and kind of boundary leaping endeavors inside the aesthetic, it never occurs to them that they would have to give an account of what they do in order for that to be classified as thinking. Since you've led us there, 
Can we talk a bit about your work with Kentridge's The Centre for the Less Good Idea? And I'm thinking particularly of that fourth season where you were the director and curator of that season at the centre. And that was a season that you gave the thematic collapsed conference. And perhaps more than any other area of your work that I'm knowledgeable about, it's where you did seem to be explicitly thinking through the role of the aesthetic in relation to knowledge production, both in the kind of artists that you included in that season and the sort of structures that were given to the events. I think, for instance, of the piano work by Jill Richards and Carl Shepard which is marvellous. You know, I was lucky enough to attend that. That was also given the title of, I think, Collapsed Concert. <laughs> so what was the meaning of collapse in your thinking at this stage with that project at the centre? <laughs> the idea, in a way, emerged through a dialogue with Bronwyn Lace, who was at that stage the animateur for the uh, Centre for the Less Good Idea. Her background was also in the arts and she has a very substantial arts practice herself, even though she was at that stage very fully immersed in getting the Centre for the Less Good Idea established for William. So we were trying to think about what one can do inside the performance space that would show the poverty of the intellectual environment. So it was in a way a kind of a cheeky rejoinder to the academy that always thought of the work of art as lesser than itself. So it was to invert that hierarchy. Having been to so many conferences in which one is squirming at the interminable tedium of hearing the 11th paper before tea and just wishing that someone would do something exhilarating to shock and surprise one. So it really sought the format of a conference in that the program was grouped almost like panels where different performances and events would comment on one another, that they would supplement one another, and that a set of ideas would be propounded across the different performances in the way that a group of papers would do at a conventional conference. So, for example, with the collapsed concert I'd always been incredibly struck by the will to the avant-garde that Jill Richards had and her interest in avant-garde piano composition. And at the same time, thinking about the piano in its jazz and improvisational idioms, very interested in the work of Carl Shepard. So I thought it would be marvelous to have a two-handed concert where Jill Richards and Carl Shepard were compelled to think in, inside their own piano languages about the limits of the piano as a fall. Because at a certain point, the Boulez performance can't go any further inside a kind of classical tradition. It doesn't lead to the improvisational practice and the compositional practice of Kyle Shepard. So they are both sort of at the outside edge of what the piano's limits are. And so I thought it would be really marvellous to put those two voices into a conversation together to show us what the capacities and the potentialities of two totally different traditions meeting with the technology of the piano. 
And then we had the very good luck that Carl himself, although he is now known almost exclusively as a pianist and composer, he started out his music career as a violinist. His first music teacher was a violin teacher. And so Gerrit Marx, who was an art maker, he made a rather stupendous piano, violin, sound machine out of the body of a Mercedes-Benz, which he then strung as if it were a stringed instrument. And Kyle played the one-car door. So he also then moved across from that concert space into thinking with Gerrit about bodies of sound inside the automobile remnants. Yeah, they were all absolutely marvelous pieces of work and experiences for the audience, I have to say. And what particularly interested me in your curation was the deconstruction of the format of the lecture. I felt that began with the very opening lecture that you had given by the Lebanese-American artist-academic Walid Raad. So interestingly, I've been in communication with him in the last 24 hours because uh, of the hideous bomb and explosion in Beirut. You know, bomb is a kind of a loose designation there because nobody really understands what exactly gave rise to this horrifying collapse in Beirut. So I've been in communication with him in the last 24 hours and thinking about his Grief And the lecture that he gave, it was a real tour de force. And Walid has worked for a number of years on the kind of threshold between fact and fancy. So he has produced lectures in which he marshals enormous numbers of fact. And the facts are either pseudo facts or they are facts applied into a false setting so that he represents an incredibly cerebral high order of thought around information and the catastrophes ongoing in the Middle East. And then he just skews the information slightly. And so two thirds of the way through the lecture, you begin to suspect that the world that you're observing isn't quite as it seems. And as he weaves you in, you suddenly realize that you've been, you know, a complete patsy because he has been toying with you all the way through. And it's, you know, very disquieting to be in an era of um, fake facts where someone like Walid Rad is showing you how susceptible one is to believe anything that you are given as hard information. So all of that, you know, the fact-checking responsibility. So... That, that in itself is quite a complex enigma is how to think about the status of the fact in a post-factual era because one doesn't want to completely surrender the terrain that one has to interrogate the notion of the factuality of information. And so it's just a really, really compelling instrument that he has come up with. I remember also a number of years ago seeing a very seductive photographic installation that he had made. It was a room full of photographs of very, very stylish 60s and 70s sports cars. So an old tomato red Mustang and a, a mustard Studebaker, all sorts of you know really desirable commodity cars, which were all in enormous scale plastered on the walls of the exhibition space. And then as you exit the room, 
There was a very tiny note that indicated that the cars seen in these portraits had all been used as car bombs in the Lebanon. So, you know, he's in that charged exploration of information and its emotional meaning. His work is really extraordinary. And he's put out an appeal for anyone who has any kind of capacity to support the cultural project in Beirut now as they try and reassemble themselves. And it would be great to have the information link to that in some way associated with this podcast so that we can think with Walid Rad and his brilliant body of work. Anyone who wants to watch him also, he came up with a pseudo group called the Atlas Project. And it was only after a number of years that I discovered that the Atlas Project is one human being, but he's always got this kind of collectivity so he can disengage himself for absolute responsibility for the things that happen under the aegis of the, the Atlas Project. But the Atlas Project is Walid Rad. No, he was absolutely marvellous. So if Walid was actually undermining or throwing into question the reliability of the lecture as a form of conveying knowledge and truth to an audience, it seemed to me your piece at season four, which was Pan Troglodyte, was doing something different with the lecture in that you were expanding the possibilities of the lecture. Maybe I should just say a word to listeners and the link to a full video of that performance will be in the text of this podcast. But it was a lecture that you gave in quite a traditional sense from behind the podium with notes in hand, but you were accompanied counterpointed by two actor puppeteers, Terry Norton and Tony Mjambo, who were operating a wooden chimpanzee puppet. And that engagement, that counterpointing between your lecture and their performances was what made that piece, Pan Troglodyte, quite extraordinary, I think, for everybody who's experienced it. And you have presented it on a number of different occasions, but I thought that was a particularly strong instance of it. Can you talk a bit more about how you understand expanding or exploding the traditional format of the lecture in this way? And what do you hope to achieve by that? Thanks, Christo. I'm very interested to think about it because I've asked myself in a way why I persist with the lecture, that sort of classic style of the lecture as a form. I am aware that the kind of pedagogical impulse has been to move away from the lecture, but I know that we as citizen subjects are forever going to be captive to uh, closed utterances. We're going to have to come to terms with assimilating and interpreting a kind of long statements and our sensibilities need to be attuned in order to be able to defend ourselves against the lecture format. And so I'm really interested in setting up the propositional lecture and then doing whatever I can to distract one from the lecture and also to demonstrate that the lecture can be massively supplemented and enriched through other modes of performance. So the lecture piece, it's got this gorgeous chimp puppet, which was made by Adrian Kohler from Handspring Puppet Company. 
and two performers, Tony Miombo and Terry Norton. And Terry Norton plays Jane Goodall, who is one kind of arc of the history of primate research. And Tony Miombo plays, at one point, Wolfgang Köhler, who was one of the other pioneering researchers in primate research. And so I'm interested in those two bodies, the kind of slightly effete white female who comes to Africa as Jane Goodall, and also the African man represents the German scholar. So I'm interested in the kind of confusion and the disquiet of having those figures inside that construction together. And it also becomes then an exploration into race theory and the history of robotics and AI and the way those all intersect with each other. Primate research, race theory, artificial intelligence, that's been inside one very complex field of meaning across 20th century research. And I had enormous regard for Tony Miombo, who has done performances of Kafka's report to the Academy, in which he performs himself as a primate. And he knows absolutely the disquiets inside the audience of watching a black man perform an ape, because he's so aware of the charged metaphoric fields and what that signifies. And he's, you know, really exhilarated by taking his audience into a kind of threshold experience of the unease of being inside that matrix, which is generated by all of those different discursive fields, primate research, race theory, artificial intelligence, robotics. What is the limit of the human in terms of the animal and in terms of the object that whole spectrum of ideas comes together in that conversation. No, it does in the most extraordinarily powerful way. Tony actually does an extract from the Kafka's report to the Academy in that lecture of yours, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. So, you know, I'm thinking very expressly with Kafka. And then I actually pick up the idea from the report to the Academy and the final concluding passage is my thinking with Kafka. So it's not actually Kafka, it's drawing on the figure in the report of the Academy is an ape who is ashamed because it's assimilated the behaviors of the human. And in the version that we work is, it's trying to understand what racialized education did in South Africa, where it stripped the human out of human beings and turned them into technologies and turned them into kind of brutes for mining industry and extraction capital. So it's sort of the counterpart to the report to the academy. And in terms of that performance, that aesthetic object, which is the performance with you and the two actors and the puppet, it does seem to me that you're able to make connections in a way that would be difficult to do in a more conventional and limited form of a lecture? I'm quite interested in looking at, you know, difficult ideas and thinking how you make those difficult ideas really resonate for an audience. So, for example, one of the thinkers that I'm thinking with in that lecture is Nancy 
who thinks in very productive ways about how no subject is singular. So he's thinking with the idea of being multiple singular. And the puppet is, of course, performed by two people. And the chimp that is on stage is neither Terry Norton nor Tony Miambo, nor the wooden construction that Adrian Kohler made. The chimp only becomes a being, a resonating, affectively charged and tender being to watch when those two sensibilities come together with the materiality of the carved object. And I talk about that and I talk about the audience getting it while they're watching me talk about it because they are in fact watching the ape. And the ape is engaged in its own ape world. It's trying to extract termites out of a mound. It's trying to pick up a leaf. And so one is lost in the kind of reverie of watching this piece of wood perform its sensibility in front of you at the same time as you're learning about this complex idea of how all human beings are constituted as a group and that we come into singularity through multiplicity. So that's the kind of propositional work that really interests me is to take tough ideas and put those tough ideas into a space where one is more receptive because one is actually learning through the senses with an activated mental apparatus, but not purely cerebral activity. Yes, yes, indeed. I must say, as you know, I'm particularly interested in the representation or the meteorization of events and knowledges. And having watched it live now on a few occasions, your pan troglodyte, and then watching it in the video reproduction on the center's website, or it's actually on Vimeo, they've got it. I found the video, in watching the video, I was able to pay much closer attention to the two actors. Whereas whenever I've seen it live, my attention has been taken by the presence of the wooden puppet. <laughs> it's almost that duck rabbit conundrum. You can only properly focus on the one aspect of the puppet experience. And with the video, it was much easier to just concentrate on the actors behind the puppet because both Tony and Terry are really magnificent in their performances. So that's so fascinating because that obviously has many complex technical and technological sources for that shift in orientation because obviously when you're filming two beings performing with a third being, one is hyper attentive to the light levels and is making sure that your actors are visible. And I think when you're inside a live performance environment, the live actors move in and out of darkness and light all the time. And I think that the eye, the iris shifts and can accommodate those different kind of textures and the nuances of the shaded space on stage. And a camera, I think, probably makes flatter and deader choices than the human eye can. So one is getting a very different kind of reading, and that's about the brilliance of the organic technology of the human eye. So that's extremely interesting to learn about and to think that that's a very fundamental difference between the two modes of performance, that the recorded performance will privilege figures in a particular way because of the demands of lighting. Which takes me to another point, and it's really about how to communicate and distribute and archive 
artistic research or let's say aesthetically orientated knowledge production. And I think that example of the difference between the eyes experience of the performance in Pan Troglodyte versus the camera's recording of it, I think highlights for me the great difficulty of preserving and communicating these insights that are presented through live performance and perhaps limits to how it can be communicated or archived. You know, archiving the live event is a very profound puzzle and it's something that I'm very interested in. I've, you know, long wanted to have some way of thinking about how one captures performance and have a serious kind of international conversation about ephemera. So I'm busy working with another piece at the moment about the history of Solplaiki, a really magnificent early pioneer, one of the founders of the ANC. It's a diary that he writes in 1899 and 1900 during the South Africa War, what is historically was referred to as the Anglo-Boer War. He was a translator, wasn't he? He was a kid who was raised at a mission school and he never got beyond standard three. And he ended up becoming a really profound linguist in seven different languages, including English, Dutch, and German, and four African languages. He started an English Setswana newspaper. He was the first person to translate Shakespeare into an African language. And he was court interpreter for Baden-Powell during the war. And so there's so many different dimensions of him. And he writes Native Life in South Africa, which is a damning indictment of the Land Act in 1913. And then when they try to appeal to the British government to intervene over the theft of land in South Africa, he goes over to the UK to approach the British government. And because he's unsatisfied there, he goes to the USA, he meets W.E.B. Du Bois, he meets Marcus Garvey, and he publishes Native Life in South Africa. So that kind of extraordinary sweep of this human being, we try to think how does one do justice to that figure and to the seriousness of the history inside a theatrical event that doesn't trivialize him. So we're working with something that Kentridge had been exploring called a Pepper's Ghost. Kentridge and I have both had a long history of interest in illusionism, and we were both thinking about these technologies of the 19th century. And the Pepper's Ghost is a machinery that allows the simultaneous presence of live bodies on stage and three-dimensional projections of bodies from and elsewhere. It's how they used to explore such figures as Hamlet's father's ghost or Macbeth's dagger. It would be a trick with smoke mirrors. And so we've created a Pepper's Ghost in which Pala Opala, the actor who plays Sol Plaiki, will be himself a 21st century theatre practitioner and intellectual in a dialogue with the dead Sol Plaiki. So on stage, you have the live presence of Pala Opala and the recorded presence in three dimensions of Pala Opala as Sol Plaiki. When we capture that performance, all you've got is two, you know, filmed performances side by side. 
So it gives you some idea of the interest of the work, but it's nothing like what it means when you sit there and you watch Paolo Opala himself in the flesh next to Paolo Opala himself as a kind of projection. It's a, that's it. There's nothing you can do about that. It has to become part of your thinking of the work. Yes. On the topic of performance, you know, the ARA conference we had in January where you and Slantla did one of the opening events. I came away from that with a very strong sense that the most active area of aesthetic investigation in South Africa is performance oriented. Does your experience, particularly your experience working with such a range of performers and artists at the center, does that support the notion that I'm suggesting? I have to say that is my experience. And again, that may be the circumstances of having two of the world's best theater companies in South Africa. You know, we are a small country and we are blessed with two of the great reigning theatrical geniuses of our time inside the space, Handspring Puppet Company and William Kentridge. And so around them proliferate various different experimentalisms inside the performance realm. But of course, Kentridge is also a fine artist, but there's something about the idioms of performance now in South Africa. I think a lot of it came out of the extraordinary brilliance of dance and choreography. The dance practitioners like Gregory McCormick and others, I think dance had a particular kind of purchase because it was non-linguistic, so it wasn't constrained by translation needs. So there have been any number of really absolutely phenomenal dance performers. And I think then in a way the performance arts propped themselves on dance because people were exploring embodied being in all sorts of ways. And there was radical uh, transgressiveness around race and gendered subjectivity coming out of the dance community. And that has uh, you know, really kind of liberated performance practice in South Africa. I do think for me, it is the most inventive of all of the practicing arts in South Africa now. I strongly agree with that perception. Just the last point, and it's a big one, maybe it's just to touch on it because it connects with so much of your thinking and your creative work. You have reached and, and articulated the insight that on one hand, our increasingly automated world that we're living in is dissolving boundaries that were previously quite secure between the live and the virtual. And yet, that also seems to be happening either connected to or simultaneously with a dissolving of boundaries between the human and the non-human in the realm of the living. And do you have a sense that the aesthetic is a particularly potent means of exploring those two edges of contemporary consciousness? Gosh, Krista, I think that's a really interesting question. And in some ways, I've been thinking about that question obliquely over the past months because of the masked face. So I'm very struck by, you know, and have been a scholar for a long while, as I said, my interest in the history of sincerity. 
are very interested in empathy and in the expressive gesture and the uh, ways in which we recognize humanity across difference. And so I've been really struck to think about what are the implications of living in a world where we have such a diminished expressive field. So I think that those questions really do matter to me, that we have learned our subjectivity with all of its kind of catastrophic historical failures, largely because of empire and because of the logic of extraction. There is a kind of discourse of disquiet about people losing a kind of an ethical apprehension of the universe when they have a world that is designed to gratify them. This anxiety, in, for example, expressed in Jane Bennett about vibrant matter. Do we have an obligation to things because things and alternative modes of being not necessarily organic, but all things in the world have a right to be? My disquiet is rather that I'm anxious or concerned about living in a world in which nothing resists me. If everything in the world is there to gratify me, I am appalled to imagine what kind of subjectivity that precipitates in me. And I have to say, one observes certain global elites and apprehends that they are now in a mode of a gratification of self that has been nurtured by a global system that they have presumed is there as an instrument for them. So all of these textures of the limits to the self, one's understanding of one's organic thresholds, those things all seem to me to have a kind of an ethical propriety. And I don't quite apprehend what are the implications where one dispenses with the uncomfortable notion that things are difficult and things are complex. So I think this collapsing of the organic and the inorganic and the human and the machine, that's all part of that matrix of meaning that's, you know, of real interest for me as a kind of an ethical and philosophical question inside the laboratory of kinetic objects. And I think that the place that explores that best is the aesthetic, because you are working with matter and you are attributing to it all sorts of capacity to represent feeling. I really think that the most serious work being done in thinking about the subject-object continuum and the human and the machine, the best place where that's being explored is inside the arts. Jane, I think that's a very evocative point on which to end this conversation. So thank you very much for the time and for the work. And we look forward to following it into the future. Good. And I'll also put together a couple of readings for people who are interested in pursuing any of the ideas that have been posited in this podcast for anyone who wants to follow up some of these inquiries. And there is a marvelous little video that the New York Times put out on the robotic dogs. So I'll give you the, the link to that as well. And you can watch this very poignant scene of the uh, Buddhist monks saying goodbye. And then also rather extraordinary images of 
middle-aged couples and their grief at describing having to surrender their robot dog and how it has obviously anchored the relationship between them. Love to see that. That sounds really worth watching and touching as well. Jane, thank you very much. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the head of arts research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Professor Jane Taylor, the Andrew W. Mellon Chair of Aesthetic Theory and Material Performance at the Center for Humanities Research, University of the Western Cape, and creative collaborator with the Center for the Less Good Idea in Johannesburg. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa Project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>